In a true democracy, as demonstrated in the video, majority rule rules. There's nothing to stop it. Whereas in a constitutional republic, it is that constitution which prevents the government from doing things that the majority may wish, including trampling minority rights. So it's essential that we understand that in our constitutional republic, there are some things our government is not allowed to do. Welcome to 2A for Today. 2A for Today is a program where we explore all things Second Amendment, all things that protect, threaten, and violate the Second Amendment rights of all Americans. My name is Zoe, and I'm the host of 2A for Today. Now, today we got a special treat for you. Constitutional scholar Robert Brown has joined the show. Now, he's a spokesman for the John Birch Society on constitutional issues with a particular focus on the Article 5 Convention. However, He's best known for his lectures on the Constitution. He's produced six of his lectures as a DVD series known as The Constitution is a Solution Workshop, which is gaining popularity nationwide. This series includes such titles as The Dangers of Democracy and Enumerated versus Boundless Power. After viewing just two of these lectures, a constitutional attorney from New Jersey remarked, I've studied constitutional law under one of the most outstanding constitutional lawyers, law professors in America, and I've learned more from Mr. Brown's two DVDs that I saw than I did from the professor. So it's going to be a special treat today. Mr. Brown and his wife reside in Utah. He's a popular constitutional speaker, and he's been a guest on dozens of talk shows and lectures, and he's lectured for many liberty-minded organizations throughout the country. Back in March of 2020 21, a panel of federal appeals court judges on the Ninth Circuit held that the Second Amendment does not guarantee an unfettered general right to openly carry arms in public for individual self-defense. George Young had tried several times to obtain a license to carry a loaded gun in public and was denied. His lawyer, Alan Beck, is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to review the case and says we are hopeful that the Supreme Court will grant review in Mr. Young's case. The question is whether Hawaii's restrictions on the open carrying of small concealable arms in public are facially unconstitutional. According to the Ninth Circuit, the Second Amendment allows states to enact common sense regulations like those we have in Hawaii, State Attorney General Claire Connors said in a statement. The ruling properly upholds the constitutionality of Hawaii's longstanding law allowing persons to carry firearms openly in public when licensed to do so, she said. Since the ruling, the governor of Hawaii has signed even more restrictive state edicts in the law, like House Bill 1366, sponsored by Patrick Branco, and it amends the language regarding home-built firearms. It bans possession of certain unfinished firearm components, as well as home-built firearms. And House Bill 31, sponsored by Craig Takayama, which increases Hawaii's mandatory firearm storage requirements. So we're gonna talk about the Bill of Rights and how it applies to states and how it applies to Congress. And the question is, Dr. Brown, welcome, As a, by the way, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. <laughs> that was a lot of talking, uh, but I, I, I'm sorry for keeping you on hold there. <laughs> hey, I'm happy, that's great. I, uh, it's a little odd to be called Dr. Brown, but uh, I appreciate the, <laughs> the deference. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, it may be prophetic, it just may be that you, you're an honorary and you should be already. 
uh, given that <laughs> title publicly. But anyway, uh, Mr. Brown, Teacher Brown, Rabbi Brown, <laughs> we know that you're a constitutional scholar and we honor you and we thank you for your contribution. Saving the Republic is, is a tough job and you've been working at it for a long time and we appreciate your, your sacrifices. So, well, thank you. Yeah. The, but the question of today is the Bill of Rights. Does it apply to states as well as the federal government? Because obviously, you know, I should be able to protect myself no matter what state I'm in. Uh, it seems like the Second Amendment is supposed to be protecting my rights as well. But I mean, obviously, um, there's a lot of contention on that. I mean, the federal government is withheld by the Bill of Rights. It says that Congress shall make no laws. But can you kind of talk to us a little bit about the history of the Bill of Rights and how it applies to states and the federal government? And I might interject with some questions as you go along. Certainly. And as I mentioned to you before we, we went on the air here, this question of the day, does the Bill of Rights really apply to the states as well, is not just a simple yes or no question. <laughs> In fact, there are, there are three topics or three answers I want to explore with you on, on this. The first one is, what was the understanding of the states when they ratified the Bill of Rights? And that answer is pretty contrary to what most people believe. The, as an example, the prohibition on any state-established religion. Of course, we, we recognize that. We don't have any state-established religions anymore. We did at the time the Bill of Rights was adopted and for several years after. Hmm. The point I'm making with that is that the First Amendment restricting the establishment of a state religion did not block the states from doing so. At the time, they, the, the states that did have one didn't have to give that up when they ratified the First Amendment. They recognized that the first words of, of the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law, applied to whom? <laughs> Congress. Mm. <laughs> Pretty obvious. And, and so with that in mind, they recognized that the Bill of Rights was further restrictions on federal power, as it says in its own preamble. So that was the original intent of the Bill of Rights. It was to apply to restricting of the federal government's power. And frankly, just as a quick side note, Madison and Hamilton both felt like it was unnecessary because any powers that weren't granted within the Constitution, they didn't need to further state, oh, and you don't have this power. We never granted it in the Constitution. We don't need to say we didn't grant it by adding a Bill of Rights. So for a while, both Hamilton and Madison opposed the adding of a Bill of Rights. Eventually, Madison came on board and helped spearhead it through, feeling like this will assure the states, make them feel more comfortable, let's go ahead and do it. Uh, but additionally, while the Bill of Rights was never intended to apply to the states, most states do have their own Bill of Rights. And so in that way, even if there was no Bill of Rights on the national level, the states would be restricted by their own state constitutions and their own Bill of Rights. Mm. So that's the, the first stage that we wanted to consider is just what was the understanding originally? Mm -hmm. And that was clearly no, it did not apply. Now, the next thing we get into is the incorporation doctrine. That is the idea that with the passage of the 14th Amendment, it incorporated the Bill of Rights to being applying to the states as well. Interestingly, this didn't happen when the 14th Amendment was ratified though. It was about 57 years later in 1925 that the courts discovered, oh, wait a minute, 
14th Amendment would apply the Bill of Rights to the states. So it was created by the, by the courts, really, this incorporation doctrine. And I feel like it sets a kind of a dangerous precedent, a dangerous concept here. Uh-huh. Number one, it wasn't the original intent, which is what I always focus on. It wasn't the original intent of the 14th Amendment. Um, it was invented by the courts. But it also puts into the federal government's authority and jurisdiction the oversight of the states regarding the Bill of Rights. Just like you're talking about with the Hawaii example, where this is now going on to the Supreme Court, and it would set a national precedent based on the courts of what the national courts say. As we start putting all these different things into national jurisdiction, the federal government gains more power. So there's a lot of concern there. But whether we want the Bill of Rights to apply to the states or not, frankly, I like the idea of the states having to abide by those concepts, whether it's in the federal constitution or their state, certainly. But the original intent was not that. It was, it was changed mm-hmm. by the courts. So to be consistent constitutionally, that would mean that we would have to be against the incorporation doctrine and be more focused on getting our states to actually pass its own, either add its own Bill of Rights or, or, or make sure that the law is clarified in your states. Which, I mean, that, that's also kind of a scary thing to do, too. I mean, obviously, I don't want to live in Hawaii, <laughs> even though it's a nice place to visit. Um, even visiting may be dangerous now. Um, but at least there's a place to move. You know, I don't have to, you know, yeah. move away from the whole country. <laughs> and, and that's part of the original idea of the Constitution was that each state would govern its affairs internally. As Madison says in Federalist 45, that the powers extended to the federal government by the Constitution are few and defined. Those extended to the states are many and indefinite. And then he goes on to say the federal power will be primarily on foreign affairs, wars, peace, negotiation, trade, things like that, whereas the power left to the states is the internal affairs. And that's how it's supposed to be. Go ahead. Do you remember there's a quote, I think Madison, he said something about the Constitution in its original intent that if, if it's not interpreted based on that, then it's, it's not the Constitution at all. Is, do, you, do you remember that quote? Is that a real quote? I, I know several quotes that say that idea, mm-hmm. but uh, Jefferson and Hamilton, both or, sorry, Jefferson and Madison, both expressed that concept that the only true Constitution is the one as it was written, as it was intended by those who wrote it and by the, when they're ratifying it, what the states understood, mm-hmm. they were being told mm-hmm. as they were ratifying it. And one of the greatest examples of that is the Federalist Papers. The Federalist Papers were letters to the editor written by John Jay, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, explaining to the newspapers of New York, to the people of New York, here's how this new constitution will work if you choose to adopt it and go along with it. So essentially, so so go ahead. Yeah, sorry. That, that's essentially, that has been looked at for now hundreds of years as official explanation on how the constitution is supposed to work. Because this is what the states adopted it with their understanding of what was explained in the Federalist Papers. Mm -hmm. So it's often been used in courts as proof of what the Constitution is supposed to mean. Go ahead. So essentially what we need to do is have a, instead of like a, you know, kind of a, an Article 5 necessarily constitutional convention, we need to have um, movements within the states to, I mean, either uh, amend or their own constitutions or write resolutions to clarify their own constitutions or, or write a bill of rights that would be in line with the federal of the U S government, the U S constitution. Is that, is that a reasonable? Yeah. Yeah. 
again, if we reject the incorporation doctrine, which I do, it's upheld by courts. Uh, all lawyers are taught that this is law, <laughs> which courts aren't supposed to create law. But in, in place of that, what was supposed to happen and what still should happen is that we, the people, make movements within our states to protect our rights further. I've seen in several states that their state bill of rights are more robust, put more clarity, more restrictions on, on the government's restricting of our rights and so on. And so in many cases, the bill of rights within the states are even better. Mm. And, and that's great, that's how it should be. Mm. But like you were saying before, the ability to move from one state to another, one state says, we don't recognize your right to bear arms and whatever, and others that do, you'd have the ability to go to the state that has the freedom that you want to live under. Yeah. There is one other aspect to this though. We've covered the two of the three that I wanted to talk about. One was the original intent. What did they understand when they adopted the Bill of Rights? The second was this concept of the incorporation doctrine. But the third one, getting into the actual text of the second amendment, because kind of the general question here is, does the Bill of Rights apply? And, and, and kind of boiling that down to, does the second amendment apply? to the states. And you'll notice reading the first few words of the first amendment, Congress shall make no law. They didn't repeat that in the second. And for good reason. The first words of the second amendment, very few people are really that familiar with. We all know about the right to keep mirror arms shall not be infringed. And that there's a period there, there's no exceptions added to it afterward. But the introduction to the second amendment is important. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This, number one, is talking about the necessity of a militia. Now, I have to stop on the word militia for a moment because the word militia is very misunderstood, especially thanks to the part the media has played through the years. Anytime they see some rogue anti-government group that's supposedly gonna try to, I don't know, do something dangerous, they label it as this crazy militia hiding out in the backwoods somewhere. Get, they're they're going to get F-15s, F-15s and, and uh, nuclear bombs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's the only time we hear the word militia is some group that they're trying to smear. And that's not at all what the word militia was intended to mean or was used as by our founding fathers. It's repeatedly mentioned throughout the Constitution and in the Bill of Rights. And what it was during their day was a requirement. It's not a right, it's a requirement, it's a duty of every citizen. And typically, and the states set their own boundaries on this, but it's typically somewhere in the range of 14 to 16 years old, on up to around 60, 65 years old, somewhere in that range, that every able-bodied man was required to own a gun and, and powder and you know whatever it required at the time and to be trained in it on a regular basis, to be organized in their local communities, militia, which had its own local structure, and under the Constitution in Article 1, Section 8, I believe clauses 14 through 16, goes through details of Congress having the duty to organize, arm, and train the militia on a national level, but then the states oversee the actual um, control of that militia, except as called forth by Congress during a time of war or something of that nature. It even specifically says that it's to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, repel invasions. Those are the three purposes for the constitutional militia. 
It does not qualify for things like, well, let's send them off to Afghanistan or something like that. That's not a proper use of a militia. It's a homeland defense. It's a defensive mechanism. But I mean, don't we have a state militia? I mean, isn't doesn't the National Guard qualify as our state militia? I mean, and that's that's kind of what they've replaced it with is the National Guard. But as we just mentioned, you look at how they're using the National Guard, two ways in which, just off the top of my head, it doesn't fit the founders' vision of a militia. Number one, it's being used for foreign affairs. It's being used for wars abroad, which execute laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions are the only purposes of the militia. None of those have to do with going and fight, fighting a foreign war. But the second one is, it was supposed to be everyone. It's supposed to be every able-bodied person. Back then, it was every able-bodied man. Today, women got to get their their equal rights, equal representation, equal share of whatever. So it would be probably every able-bodied person within that age age range. And just to, to illustrate how incredibly powerful a properly implemented Second Amendment is with a properly implemented militia in every state, um, I took a few minutes this morning and pulled up some statistics uh, where I just moved from, Montana, one of the smallest states in the union. They have just over a million population. And based on demographics, they have about 330,000 people in the range of 16 to 65. So somewhere in the range of 300,000 would be required to be part of the Montana militia, which would rank them as the 16th largest military power in the world today. That's just little Montana. Jumping up to the middle of the, middle of the ground here, the, let's see, Kentucky is number 26 as far as state size per population. So they're just lower than the mid-mark of our country. And Kentucky would be, let's see, they have a, about 1.4 million, 1.4 million people would qualify for being required to be part of their militia, regularly training in the use of their firearms in defense of our country, which would actually place them just ahead of the United States military. They would become, they would kick the United States out of ranking number three in the largest military in the world. Oh, Staggering. wow. Staggering. That's just Kentucky. When we get to, uh, let's say, Indiana, 2.1 million. Indiana's the 17th largest state. That means Indiana and all 17 states larger than, equal to Indiana, would have a larger militia than China's entire military force. Wow. Our 17 largest states would all be equal to or bigger than China's military might. Wow. That's 17 wow. China's just within the United States as far as military power goes. It's staggering. And then you get to some of our larger states, like Florida, would be roughly three times China. Texas, roughly four times China, and California, roughly six times China's military size. So, I mean, it's it's out of control, brother. It, now <laughs> we you have hit the nail on the head in my mind for why our country is so insecure right now. <laughs> it, we are That's insecure. Security, free state, yeah. It, that's it. Because we yeah. don't have the citizen militia, we are insecure. Oh my yeah. goodness. I, I want you to imagine if if we had this in place, what 
foreign nation would dare even consider any kind of a homeland invasion of the United States. When our top 17 states are all larger than China's military power, and even tiny little Montana is the 17th largest military power in the world. Yeah. Not counting all the other states that are ahead of them, of course. I mean, it's just, it's staggering. It shows you just how incredibly wise the founders were in the way they set up the Constitution. There's more to it as well. One of the biggest concerns the founders had was how do we have a powerful military force to repel invasions and such without putting to the hands of our national government another Redcoats type army that could be used against our own people? just like King George had done. And their brilliance was that we don't have an ongoing standing army required in the Constitution. That Congress is required to vote every two years on whether or not to continue funding the national army so that they can disband it anytime it's not needed. But if we suddenly need it, we have these millions of militia members all across the country that are ready to reassemble at moment's notice that they need to repel an invasion or something of that nature. So we're not insecure in any means, even if we didn't have a standing army, because the only reason for a standing army is if we need to go against a foreign foe. And so they intended to not give the federal government an ongoing standing army because they didn't want to see a repeat of redcoats being used against our own people. Instead, they want to put the power as close as possible to the people by putting in the power of the states. And one last point on that, historically on a number of occasions, Congress has called forth the militia for causes the states felt were unjust. And the states in many cases have said no. Hmm. There's a check and balance there. Yeah. That if the Congress is calling forth the militia and we say, you know, we're not sending our militia for that cause, we don't believe in it. There's nothing they can do about it. The states are the ones who are left in control of that tremendous military power the constitution designated and, and that's Absolutely I mean, brilliant. that's it is it's brilliant that's the way it should be right now we, yeah. we we're sending troops all over the the world without congressional approval to do all kinds of things that are warlike yeah. uh, if, if they had to depend on drawing from the militia then none of that stuff would be happening we wouldn't even have to think about terms like right. non-interventionism and all that stuff it wouldn't even matter. We wouldn't need to have that kind of philosophy because the states could just themselves say, no, that doesn't qualify as a use <laughs> right. of the militia. That gives the states a tremendous amount of power over the misuse of military power. Yeah. Brilliant, isn't it? It's, 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 one, it's, it's outstanding. I, I, I understand, too, at the time, I mean, obviously, there was the ability to maintain a Navy because it's difficult. Like, yep. I think you said it in your in your teaching that it's difficult to invade your own country from the water. So <laughs> right. And it's also difficult to raise a, a Navy overnight. Mm-hmm. That's not the kind of thing you can when you need one. You have to have built it up over many years. But it's not a serious threat against your homeland either. You know, I was thinking about, too, the insecurity that we face on the streets, because obviously there was no law enforcement officers back then. We had a sheriff. I'm sure we had yep. deputies, but there was no like, you know, local city uh, municipality kind of like law. Uh, and and, if, and as a, I mean, I guess with that in mind, the Supreme Court of the United States has opined on many occasions that law enforcement have no obligation to protect anyone that's not in their custody. So yep. that leaves protection of the populace, of the citizenry to us. 
And so that means right. the militia not being engaged, not being trained, not having 500,000 armed, good people, armed and ready. And out of that 500,000, maybe let's say, you know, a 32nd of those good people aren't, aren't really good people. They may be whatever. Still, yeah. <laughs> 300, 400,000 people that are armed and they're constantly training are the kind of things that make people think twice about doing stupid things on the streets. Exactly. Just, just not having that in itself, you know, it's kind of like uh, here in Afghanistan, you know, we, we, are we here in Afghanistan that the Afghanistan, the Afghani army <clears throat> ran off and the uh, government flew away. And so all the people in Afghanistan are running to the airport, climbing on to C-17s and falling hundreds of feet to their death, trying to get away from a Taliban who is really a sliver a sliver of the amount of people in Afghanistan yep. because we went over there and we taught them standing army. We didn't teach them citizen militia. If we would have gone over there with the philosophy that our founders had, that every male X and X, you all are going to be trained in your community to take care of your community, not to depend on the, the, the standing army military force. And that's their job, but all of your jobs are to, and so here are, your weapons, get yourself trained, prepare yourselves in order to be able to take on this Taliban who's likely going to come when we leave. You know, the right. citizen militia seems that that's the way the United States of America was formed. Without a citizen militia, we wouldn't be here right now. That's right. You know, last question to address here is then if the purpose of the Second Amendment was truly homeland security, what types of weapons does that authorize or guarantee to the people to have access to. Hmm. Hunting rifles, handguns, military-grade weaponry. And of course, the answer is all of the above. They're, they're supposed to be able to be armed at any level of any other military. Hmm. Of course, it would be at least financially impractical for me to buy an Abrams tank or an, an F-15 or you know whatever. I'd love to be able to afford those. I hear but, the Taliban's got some on sale right now if you want. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but the point is that as a as a group, the state militia can mm -hmm. have those types of weapons available. Mm -hmm. And individually we would at least have our own firearms of military grade weaponry. Mm -hmm. And having it available to defend on a local level as well as from invasions from abroad. So the whole argument of uh, you shouldn't have a magazine that holds more than 10 rounds or six rounds or whatever, that doesn't qualify for the militia requirements of full military grade weaponry. That kind whether, of shoots down every restriction argument. Whether organized or unorganized, right? Right, right. Today, they, they claim there's the organized militia, which is the National Guard. The unorganized militia is everybody else. So they do still refer to the general body of the people as the unorganized militia. But even that doesn't fit the requirements that the founders intended, that every able-bodied man or woman today would be required to be armed and trained and ready. So we really need to get our legislat legislators to repeal like the Dick Act and to pass resolutions when we have the House and the Senate that clearly define, um, I guess, essentially how we see 
the citizen militia and the Second Amendment? Is it and what? Yeah, what are some of the things that, that we can have our legislature? I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but are there anything you can think of that we can actually have our legislators do that will be effective to prevent? Um, I guess kind of going backwards, back to where we are now. Um, how can we move forward and not not go backwards? Yeah, and that's a great question. Of course, the first thing is states need to be recognizing the right to bear arms for what it really is. Um, states can and, and frankly should be working to revitalize their state militias. In At this stage, I wouldn't recommend that we push for mandatory involvement for everybody within the age range, that kind of thing. There are a lot of people that would just really push back against that. But at least have it to begin with as an open invitation that we're going to revamp this, we're going to revitalize it again. And those that want to participate, you'll have free training and all these different things. I, I think a lot of people would be willing to participate in that. Many people have tried to do that themselves on a local level uh -huh. and calling themselves, we are the constitutional militia and, and really they're not. Uh, when on a local level, I just get a bunch of my friends together and we start training, we're not a true constitutional militia unless we then come under the jurisdiction and command of our state leaders. Okay. That's really how it's supposed to be done. As, as far as a jurisdiction goes, the state is in, in charge of their state militia and so with, organized so with, and directed by them. Go ahead. With, with that said then, what any of the militia members that are watching the program right now, it may be a wise thing. I mean, obviously we're kind of concerned about the federal government, FBI, CIA sure. kind of like embedding themselves even in state government. And, um, state government's actually working on behalf of the federal government that way. But um, right. it may be wise to, to actually submit yourselves to the state militia in some way, shape or form, whether that means making relationship with the people that are actually in those positions within the states and letting them know that, look, I'm a free human being. I'm part of the unorganized militia and we're gathering together. And we just want to make sure that, you know, if you have any need, whatever the case may be, and you need us to mobilize, we're here and we're ready. Right. And that way you can at least put yeah, yourself absolutely. within the realm of what would be even, I mean, obviously, if you're going to have a right, you got a duty. That's, I mean, if you're going to, there's, there's an adage, it should be, I guess, one of the founders should have said it, or maybe it should be in the Bible or something. <laughs> but if you don't do your duty, you will lose your right. <laughs> so, yeah. so maybe a, a hoove of us, all of us, um, that consider ourselves the organized, unorganized militia to go ahead and check in. And do it the way it's supposed to be, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, the first duty in that regard is Congress. And Congress has shirked their duty. But the states have a duty as well to organize their militia and to oversee it. And so on both fronts, it should be done. Either one of them should be able to take up that, that task and say, I know we failed it in the past. It's time to start doing it again. Outstanding. Ah, brother Robert, Robert Brown, pastor... <laughs> Uh, rabbi, teacher, <laughs> <laughs> the illustrious one. Uh, we, uh, thank you so much <laughs> for being on the program with me today, man. It was so enlightening and enriching. And, and, I, and I, just, I mean, obviously, I've listened to you speak for hours and, and, and you didn't know it. And so now it's such a pleasure to be able to actually to talk with you in person. Well, kind of. Thank you. <laughs> hey, it's live. It's live. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the program today. And uh, that's going to conclude the program for today. Is there anything else you want to say before we, before we wrap up? Yeah, I can't miss the opportunity to at least encourage people to learn the whole Constitution through the Constitution series that we created a number of years ago. The Constitution is the solution. Available on jbs.org. Outstanding. Constitution is the solution. I've, 
I've taken it, my son's taken it. We're actually having some classes here locally as well. So if you're in the local area of Columbia, South Carolina, send a message to 2A4today at gmail.com, 2A4today at gmail.com, and we'll get you signed up for our classes. And if you want to take a Constitution the Solution workshop in your area, go to gbs.org and reach out to the staff there, and they'll be able to point you in the right direction. So thank you, Dr. Brown. Thank you, uh, Teacher Brown, Rabbi Brown. <laughs> That concludes our program for today. But again, in the coming weeks and months, two-way for today, we'll be talking to experts, scholars, trainers, and all forms of gun right activists and Second Amendment proponents to answer the many questions that we all have and unpack the various laws and trespasses of our rights that have already been enacted and those that are on the horizon. Again, if the Second Amendment is important to you, make sure to subscribe to the New American Magazine and get on the top daily headlines mailing list so that you get an email alert anytime we upload a video or stream a live event. And share these videos with your family and friends and those who feel the same or those that are riding the fence between liberty and tyranny who need a little more convincing. You've been watching Two Way for today. My name is Zoe. Post your comments or questions, and we'll try to address as many as we can as fast as we can in the coming weeks and months. Thank you for watching Two Way for today. The deep state is sexualizing your children, and the agenda is more nefarious than you could even begin to imagine. Stay tuned and I'll tell you more. Behind the Deep State, hosted by Alex Newman. Now, if you enjoyed 2A for today, you should check out one of the New Americans' other great shows, Behind the Deep State, hosted by Alex Newman. In Behind the Deep State, Alex exposes the shady characters, organizations, and agendas that the elites don't want you to know about. Check it out on the newamerican.com.